0: Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special D-Day edition of the Proceedings Podcast is Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. And Richard Latour, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, who's making his second appearance on the Proceedings Podcast. Hello, Richard.
1: Hi, Ward. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Bill, why don't we go ahead and introduce our guest?
1: Yeah, let's do it. So it's three days before the the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, uh, and we've got, calling in from California today, a very special guest, uh, naval history author Vince O'Hara, who has written two articles in the May-June issue of Naval History magazine. Uh, the first one is called D-Day, A Year Too Late, and the second article is called A Tale of Two Invasions, which is a, a an article about... How in June of uh, 1944, the United States and allies pulled off not one famous invasion, but two ginormous, uh, and that's a technical term, ginormous <laughs> amphibious invasions, both Neptune and Forager. So D-Day in Omaha Beach, uh, Normandy, and the other one at Saipan. So uh, Vince O'Hara, welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast.
2: Well, it's completely my pleasure. It's, it's nice to be here, and I just learned a new word, ginormous. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, uh, your two articles very well explain that, that term ginormous uh, as far as amphibious invasions go. And so the first article, D-Day, A Year Too Late, you essentially say that the D-Day invasion, you know, your article explains how the invasion could have happened in 1943, but didn't happen until 1944.
2: Why? Well, commonly, the reason why D-Day didn't happen in 1943, even though it was the original plans of the U.S. Army and General George Marshall, who was very anxious to meet the German army head-to-head on the plains of Northern Europe, um, didn't happen because basically the British didn't think it would be successful in 1943, and perhaps even in 1944. When these plans were first envisioned, and when they were first agreed to, the British would have supplied not only the base of operations, but the vast majority of the troops and the naval assets involved in pulling the invasions off. So it wasn't until later on in the war when the, the predominance of American material and men gave the U.S. the greater voice that, that the operation actually happened.
1: So one of the things we were chatting about uh, just before we started up, Ward pointed out uh, that that your article just does this great job of bringing out some of the personalities. So you've got Churchill and Roosevelt. You've got uh, U.S. General George Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, uh, counterposed with uh, the British Chief of the Imperial General Staff, General Alan Brooke. And so uh you go into, early in the article, this showdown at Casablanca. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, Casablanca happened when the Allied troops were still fighting in North Africa. In fact, they were bogged down in the mud of Tunisia, and it wasn't certain when the operation was going to end, when, in fact, French North Africa was going to be conquered. Originally, when we went into the Operation Torch and landed in Algeria and Morocco, the expectations were that Tunis, Tunisia, would fall in November, later on in the month. It would take about three weeks to to clear the Germans, excuse me, to clear the um, North Africa of any sort of access troops. That didn't happen. Instead Instead of three weeks, it took five months. And that made a big, big, big difference in what would happen in 1943, obviously. At Casablanca, they met in Morocco. The operations were still underway. And the question was, what was going to happen in 1943, the next year. The Americans were still pushing for an invasion of northern France. The British were very much opposed to that for a number of reasons and desired to continue operations in the Mediterranean where troops were based, in fact. The article makes the point about how when the uh, U.S. military leadership and the president meant before Casablanca trying to synchronize their strategy, really there was no synchronized strategy at all. Every one of the chiefs, had different priorities. Marshall was in favor of going ashore August 1943 in Brittany. King would have preferred to have continued pushing in the Pacific. He accepted the inevitability of an invasion in northern France, but he didn't really care when. And the other chiefs, uh, Lehi and, and um, Arnold, were had other priorities. So the United States was not was not united, but the British, as opposed to the Americans had settled their strategy before the conference began, and they were all on the same page. They were all pushing for the same thing, even though before the conference they might have been bitterly divided in what was the best plan to follow. So in essence, the British were united, the Americans were not. The British were prepared, the Americans were not. And the British got their way, the Americans did not. That was the essence of the matter.
3: Was that British unity due in large part to uh, General Brooke?
2: Brooke is probably the star of that cast. We know a lot about him because he kept a diary and he recorded, you know, he entered his thoughts into it every day and also his private thoughts. So we have, we have a pretty good feel for how Brooke was thinking and what he was, what he was um, actively pushing for. He was a very talented man, very intelligent, very impatient, a little arrogant, uh, successful. And I think, I think that it's proper to give him the most credit for the British uh, unanimity. He was able to stand up to Churchill pretty well, and he guided the British on a course that, um, you know, eventually saw them win the war. For whatever you know, whatever other con- contributing factors there were, he was successful in that regard.
3: One thing you touch on in the British position in your article is uh, sort of the the post World War One effect uh, on on the British Army in and their early struggles in World War Two, and how all this played into their decision on D-Day.
2: Yeah, I think that um, some people assign a lot of priority to that that factor, the, the, the blood factor, if if, you can, if I can call it that. The fact that so many young British men died in France in 1916, 17, and 18, and the fact that the British were very much opposed to repeating that experience. I mean, they lost an entire generation. And you could say the same of the French and the Germans, of course, but it seemed to have a, a greater impact on the British psyche. Other historians will say, well, that's just you know not, not the case. And so you, eventually you have to um, make your own decisions on that score. I personally think that the British were perfectly happy to see the bulk of the German army Fighting in Russia, the um, number of Germans dying per day in Russia was, um, I, I for, I've forgotten the number, but it's, it's like a thousand, thousand men a day dying, and, and nothing compared to what was happening in the Mediterranean theater. I think the British the biggest peril in that, in that um, philosophy was the fact that the Germans and the Russians were discussing uh, peace terms. If the Russians had come to a separate peace with the Germans in 1943, that would have entirely changed the dynamics of the of the war in the West. Unfortunately, that never happened. But you know, it is the fact that the foreign ministers Robotov and um, and Molotov were um, were discussing uh, were meeting in, in um, Sweden in 1943. So you know, anything's possible in war. Could have happened, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was so important for the Allies to um, get ashore in northern france as quickly as possible
0: so the thing that's amazing about this article Vince in the during the week where we're recognizing the 75th anniversary of d day as we know it is the the details around as we're talking about the lack of a cohesive strategy around the americans and the personalities of king versus leahy versus hap arnold and how the parochialism comes out in the even uh, Franklin, considering the political landscape uh, in forty-two and forty-three, you talk about a number of operations. D-Day, as we know it, was Operation Overlord, but there were some that that preceded Operation Overlord. I wonder if you could tell us the difference between them. So, Sledgehammer and Roundup. Uh, what what were those two about?
2: Sledgehammer originally started as a as a British operation that was envisioned as a way of relieving pressure on the Russians. And the British thought of a giant air battle over Pas-de-Calais area in northern France as a means of weakening the German Air Force with perhaps minor smash-and-grab-and-run landing operations involved. For me, when I first started studying this, it was a little confusing. Then the Americans took the name Sledgehammer and completely changed the operation and made it, first of all, an emergency landing in the Normandy area in the late summer, early autumn of 1942, again to relieve pressure on the Russians. In the summer of 1942, there was no certainty that the Russians would be able to withstand the German offensive, which was driving towards the oil fields and the Caucasus and occupying Stalingrad. So there was, there was a very large concern that if the Russians dropped out of the war, if they were driven out of the war, if they were conquered, the bulk of the German army would be able to redeploy to the west and make any sort of landing in, in France infeasible. And this was, you know, this was a very valid concern. So the Americans thought, well, if we can throw some divisions ashore in Normandy in 1942, perhaps this will prevent the Germans from driving that final nail into the, into the Russian coffin. The British regarded the American idea of sledgehammer as an invasion, in fact. And and, and in that respect, I think they were probably right, given the fact that Roosevelt had the imperative of conducting some sort of operation against the Germans in 1942. And frankly, it didn't seem to matter to Roosevelt that much where it was. I mean, you know, I, I always was kind of surprised at the logic of fighting the Germans in Northern Africa when the closest Germans may be a thousand miles away. I mean, I never really did quite see how that was going to help the Russians and, you know, it did in some respects, but the fact of the matter was that for Roosevelt, the important thing was to be fighting in 42. It didn't really matter where. So anyway, on that, and again, that that, that
0: point was political in nature.
2: uh, I I would say so. And, 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 you know, thinking that war is, is, is is a, an expression of politics. You can't fault Roosevelt for, um, perhaps seeing a bigger picture than his generals did. You know, Marshall was focused on the military aspects, and rightfully so. That's what you want your generals to do. But Roosevelt, being the um, commander-in-chief, had perhaps a slightly broader vision.
0: But, I mean, this is what the American people expected, wanted at that time? That, you know, let's just fight somewhere, anywhere? No, What, what the was American the, people the situation been... in the, at the home front that, that caused Roosevelt to to feel that way?
2: I think the American people would have been happy fighting the Japanese, and I think they would have been happier mm-hmm. fighting the Japanese and the Germans, perhaps. I think you know, lots of people have different opinions of Roosevelt, but in this instance, I think he was right in perceiving that the Germans were the greatest threat, that the greatest danger to defeating Germany was perhaps the American desire to fight the Japanese and get the revenge on the Japanese. There might have been uh, ethnocentric elements involved in that as well. And I think that he thought it was so important to get involved in Europe in 1942, in order to confirm that commitment and make sure that we did not redirect ourselves to the Japanese. Um, you know that in uh, early or late June of 1942, after the British had rejected the Sledgehammer Roundup or Sledgehammer, at least, um, Operation Marshall and King went to Roosevelt and said, well, "We recommend." Rediverting all of our resources to the Pacific. And Roosevelt gave them one day to come up with a plan to do that. And he rejected that plan, not surprisingly. He he saw that the right place to fight was in Europe as, as quickly as possible. And I think he deserves credit for that vision.
1: So, Vince, one of the things that I enjoyed about your article is that you know, while it's, it, it, uh, some people would say, well, this is revisionist history. And you're not doing revisionist history. You're sort of analyzing the capability. Could, could there have been an invasion of Normandy a year earlier than it happened? And, and you even say at the end, you know, war is a complicated business. Changing one variable will have unknown repercussions. But one of the things that you lay out very nicely in your article is the number of landing craft needed for a large amphibious invasion. How many were on hand in 1943 versus 1944, and some of the decisions that were made about uh, producing landing craft uh, at the you know the, the factories of war in the United States that were really cranking out all sorts of ships and aircraft and uh, tanks, et cetera. Uh, and you, there's a table on page 16. Could you walk the readers through that a little bit about how many landing craft of the different types were on hand? And and that's key to your analysis here is that, you know, perhaps there were enough on hand and could have been more in 1943 had the decision been made to do that.
2: Landing craft, you know, was the whole crux of the matter. If you, if you um, follow the history of the major amphibious assaults from you know the first pinpricks in in Norway to Madagascar to North Africa to the South Pacific to to Italy and, and finally to France, you can see that getting the troops ashore was the whole the whole crux of the matter, and then reinforcing them once they were ashore. In areas like North Africa or or better yet, take Saipan. Once you're ashore, you're there and the enemy can't get reinforced. But in France it was so critically important because the Germans obviously had the, the rail network of, of northern Europe at their back. They, they had all the factories of, of Germany, and all the resources of Germany were just a couple hundred miles away. And their ability to reinforce the, um, the war zone was, was the critical element. You had to have the, the amphibious resources and the shipping to be able to reinforce the beachheads faster than the enemy could. And in northern France, we we had to land without the benefit of a major port. And that made the amphibious shipping all the more critical. The uh, table on page 16 gives monthly average productions of certain types of landing craft. And LSTs, you know, without getting too complicated, LST landing ship tanks are perhaps the most famous landing craft that was produced in World War II. We started producing LSTs. We didn't have them. We didn't have them available for the Operation Torch. There were just two British, um, converted tankers that served that function. They had to beach maybe 100, 100 yards or 100 yards offshore, and, and the troops and the vehicles got ashore via means of, um, platoon bridges. But for Normandy, we had the, the craft that could actually beach, open the doors, and, and they were very effective, very efficient craft. We didn't have enough of them in 19, 19- 42 to really make a landing in, in, um, Normandy in sledgehammer feasible. We didn't have enough, we didn't have enough troops. We didn't have enough landing craft and we didn't have the sufficient degree of air superiority probably could have gotten ashore, but that, you know, that it would have been very, very difficult. We started producing them in great numbers, uh, fairly early on, but once the Americans found that, uh, after Casablanca that, um, there would be no landing in France in 1943. The impetus for producing all these landing craft at the expense of destroyer escorts, at the expense of escort carriers, uh, it seemed like bad bad um, mathematics. It seemed pointless to accumulate landing craft that may never actually be, be uh, employed when we're struggling to contain the submarine threat in the North Atlantic. You know, war is just a matter of priorities. A, the landing craft were triple A priority at one point. Well, how many how many priorities priorities can you have? Triple A, double A, single A. It was it was an immense competition and everybody, you know, heavy bombers, uh, aircraft carriers, fighter planes, what what are you going to produce? Even the United States could not produce everything in unlimited numbers, so you had to have priorities. Once we discovered that the landing for 1943 was off, well, we cut way back on our landing craft production. And it was a struggle, or at least it was a scramble, to get enough landing craft for the 1944 invasion. And I think that uh, the whole point of this article is that it's all a matter of priorities. If you had made the landing in 1943 a priority, that priority would have been met. There was enough precedence to show that the Allies were perfectly capable of, of improvising. I, I think the whole torch landings in, in North Africa are an excellent example of the amazing capability of the Allies to put together a, an operation that, that's brought two basically two armies across the ocean and landed on a hostile shore with very little time for planning, very little time for the collection of resources. And it worked. And I think that coming up with the 1943 invasion, you know, starting in January of uh, 1943, in the eight months that you had, you could have produced more landing craft. You could have reassigned landing craft. You could have brought more troops to England. It it was feasible. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we we could have won the war a year earlier by doing that. It's possible we could have, but it was certainly feasible. That's, I think, the major point of the article.
3: One one thing I found interesting in the article, one of the many things, is that you take a look at the German troops that were occupying France and defending the shores of Normandy. And reached some interesting conclusions about what was going on with them in 1943 and 44. Can you briefly explain that?
2: Yeah, Richard, you, you call them German troops, but in fact, um, <laughs> half of them probably weren't even German. You had a lot of you had a lot of Russians, um, captured Russians who were were serving. You had um, subject nationalities. You, you you had a lot of a, a lot of um, people who were in training. You had a lot of people who were. A lot of units were being rehabilitated, and you had a lot of units that basically had very little combat value. The, the fighting was happening on the Russian front, and the Russians, and the Germans, excuse me, the Germans were just like the Americans. They didn't want to waste good troops and good units in France when they were so desperately needed in Russia. So in 1942, and in 1943 even more so, the vast majority of the German units actually stationed in France were being rehabilitated and, and, like I said, had very little combat combat value. I think there was mm-hmm. only one mobile division stationed in the country at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, if <clears throat> if indeed the Americans had not invaded Sicily, for example, it's quite possible that the German forces in France would have been stronger. But I think there's no way they would have been stronger in 1943 they were in 1944. I think the Americans faced a much tougher enemy. We faced a number of first-line armored divisions. We faced the two two paratroop divisions, which were the best infantry formations in the German army. Were in Normandy.
3: Now, was was that because the Germans knew we'd be landing in 44, or were expecting a landing then that those troops? Yeah,
2: they they expected a landing at some time, and. I think I made the point in, in um, the book about Operation Torch that I that I wrote right. that in some respects the Germans regarded the landing in France as a great opportunity. They felt that if the Americans, the Anglo-Americans, made their play, shot their bolt, and if the invasion was defeated, that would be victory for the German side. That would have given them enough time and. And uh, flexibility to finally defeat the Russians without having to worry about an Anglo-American descent on their back, they um, they were prepared for it for many time from 1942, but by 1944 they, they knew it was coming. They were, they mm-hmm. were very sure that, that the Americans would, would be landing that summer, sometime in France, somewhere in France. And you know there was there was um, there was um, perhaps reason for them to be optimistic about defeating an Anglo-American invasion. You know, amphibious warfare is the most difficult operation of all. It requires cooperation from naval forces, air forces, and land forces. And in the case of Normandy, well, in the case of all the Anglo-American operations, we um, had to also cooperate with the British. In fact, I think 20 20 different nations were involved in the D-Day operation, one way or the other, to one degree or the other. So it's it's a very complicated um, process. You know, German German armies have seen coalition forces threaten them before. Frederick the Great's famous um, uh, reversal of fortune against the Russians, you know, is one example. The Germans were aware of their history, and they knew that coalition warfare is, is a difficult thing. And you know, frankly, they were amazed the Americans and the British and the Russians were able to hold together the, to the very end.
0: Vince, we got a question on Facebook Live from Guy Nasuti. He said, I have a question. Naval combat demolition units didn't begin training until 6 June 1943. The first classes didn't go to England until late 43. So wouldn't the NCDUs have been unavailable in 43 for D-Day unless their training had been accelerated? Or they just let the Army engineers take care of everything?
2: Well, based upon those dates that that are given in the Facebook question, you have to say yes. The, The... flip side of that is what, were the, what was the state of the demolitions or how much was there to be demolished in 1943 as oh. opposed to 1944 and the Germans didn't really start working on their beach defenses seriously until after Dieppe raid in 1942 in August of 42 so in 1943 there was a lot less there to be demolished
0: and then Bob Snow asks what about German air power in 43 as a factor preventing allied air supremacy over the beaches?
2: That's um a valid question. I, I, I pretty much take it for granted in the articles that the Allies were going to have air superiority in 1943. I think they could have. I think they did in 1943. It wouldn't have been as absolute as it was in 1944, and the Germans might have been able to reinforce it more, but I think it would have been sufficient to do the job. Not not an ideal situation, but I think it would have been sufficient. And plus, you got to remember that for Normandy, we we used very little naval air power. That was all Tied up in in the Pacific, as far as the Americans were concerned. I mean, how many fast carriers or how many large carriers in, were involved in the in the um, Normandy operation? The answer is zero. And so they were all they were all, they were there, but they were all elsewhere. Well, because up, 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 up. you
0: had a you know operating infrastructure about 30 miles away in the form of the British Isles. So the, the carrier aviation was sort of unnecessary in, in with that as the uh, construct. Versus the Pacific that was wide open.
2: Yes and no. I mean, if you're, um, there's a difference between army air and navy air. And I think that the navy air would have been. Don't I know it?
0: <laughs> you're telling
2: me? Yeah. Well, um, I think the navy air would have been more effective. I think it would have been it would have been um, much better, closer at hand than than the army air was. I knew. I fact, thought you were a great
0: historian, Vince. <laughs> well,
2: you, look, you look at you um, look at. All the, I even even I even um, referred to it in the article a little bit about how Eisenhower's frustration and trying to trying to control the air forces that were available to him and and basically he had to um, send his request for air support through through our RAF or our Army Air Force headquarters before he could get permission to, to use something in, in a tactical sense and it sounds to me a little bit like the, the the arrangements the Italians had, the Mediterranean, you know, the Navy had to go through channels and to order air support. And if it came that day, you were lucky. So I, I think I think Navy air would have been would have been um, made a, if it had been deployed in 1943, would have made the huge difference.
1: So let's move on for a minute to the uh, the second of your two articles in uh, the May-June Naval History. The second one is, is titled A Tale of Two Invasions. And you set this up by saying, you know, few people remember that June 1944 had another D-Day. On the 15th of June, the United States conducted a massive amphibious landing on the Japanese-held Mariana's Islands, known as Operation Forger. This D-Day equaled Neptune in some respects and exceeded it in others. For, for those who've served in the U.S. Navy over the last 30 years and thought about a 600-ship Navy down to a 280-ship Navy, maybe growing to 355 now, right, the number of ships involved in these two operations is just staggering. You point out Operation Neptune, so Normandy, 5,339 hulls, uh, while Forager had just over 1,000 hulls. Uh, so compare and contrast those two—the types of ships that were involved in the two different landings. You've touched on it a little bit already, but it, uh, this is just a, f- a fascinating article in the, the comparison between the two as I read them.
2: Yeah, kind of. It, I, I was always aware of the two—the two major invasions. But once you start looking at the at the nitty-gritty of it, it, it really is amazing. I mean, the fact that that um, the navy as an organization was able to conduct two such operations practically simultaneously just staggers my mind. I, I think it, I think it's it's um, I can't think of any country in any war that was able to do two such events practically simultaneously I mean in all of history it's it's just it's just amazing. And when I talk about operation forager, the the Pacific operation against the Marianas Islands as being larger in some respects I'm, I'm referring to major warships and major, amphibians I'm talking about the giant combat loaders where you could bring um, battalion of troops ashore and and they had you know, 20 or 30 landing craft available as opposed to the LSTs which were which were beaching crabs themselves or the LCTs the LCIs these were these were the the ships that invaded that invaded North Africa for example when we when we sent a um, force from Chesapeake Bay to to Morocco, you know, we didn't take the troops across in LSTs, we took them across in the giant combat loaders. And Forger had, what I'm looking at there are article, eighty three of those as opposed to forty five for Operation Neptune. Uh Operation Forger had twenty six aircraft carriers, including fast carriers and escort carriers, whereas Operation Neptune had zero. There were fourteen battleships involved in operation forager as opposed to 7 and neptune with a couple couple uh, monitors involved as well so the the very large combatants there were more in forager and that was kind of a function of of two different things first of all was the distances that the force had to travel in order to conduct the operation in in normandy we're coming across what did you say 30 miles of water and landing on on beaches within easy air access Whereas with Forager, the closest troops coming from Pearl Harbor, and I forget the number of miles, but you know, something like 4,000 or somewhere in that neighborhood, and the fact that that we were able to conduct a, a major operation of that size—you know, five divisions were on on board for the Forager Forager landings—is just—it's just, it's just it's mind-boggling. I mean, if a portion of those resources had been devoted to um, the landings in in France, for example, would have not been necessary to wait until August to invade southern France. I mean, it's obvious there would have been enough combat, power, uh, amphibious hulls to invade France simultaneously in in the south of France if we had so desired. You know, again, a question of priorities. We wanted to keep Japan, we wanted to keep them knocked back on their heels. We wanted to keep the pressure on Japan, obviously, but we didn't have to. We wanted to um, invade Italy, but we didn't have to. And you can make an argument that Italy would have left the war perfectly happily in the summer of 1943, given the right opportunities of veteran invasion of Sicily. If you, if you know Italian politics at that time, there was plenty of opposition to Mussolini. He was deposed, in fact, before Sicily had even fallen. And there was plenty of people who were willing to make a um, separate peace with the Anglo-Americans, as, as they eventually did. So it's, it's, um, it's all a question of priorities, it's all a question of resources, but the resources were there. The priorities were what the politicians and what the generals decided they should be. But as, as, a, as a matter of, of resources, the Anglo-Americans, <clears throat> the United States in particular, had, had what it took in order to do the job. And I think we probably made Normandy a little bit more um, exciting than, it, than maybe it needed to be although there would have been a cost, you know, always a cost.
0: Check me, Vince, if this isn't too much of a uh, simplification, but it strikes me from reading the article that the British got the Americans to agree to some of these summits and these meetings by sort of in general allowing that they thought that the American plan was a good one. And then once they got in the room, they would sort of review or reveal that uh, there there was they didn't quite like it as much as maybe they'd indicated when the Americans were planning on, you know, coming over to do the meeting. Um, and again, the other thing that we talked about earlier that's just amazing to me, because you've said that war is priorities, it's also personalities. And people like Marshall and Leahy and, you know, these these Navy and American military greats who for whom buildings are named, and, you know, two generations later, we just assume that they were demigods and now you realize they're just men and and they were disorganized and they had their own personal outlook and and that to me is the, that granularity, that texture is what makes this sort of uh, coverage amazing so when you think about again we just accept that there was great sacrifice by the greatest generation and we won the war and that's just sort of a facile narrative but it's the sum total of a bunch of meetings and you know Infighting and different things like that, but uh, what what about that part? What what about the the miracle of of D-Day ever happening at all?
2: Yeah, you, you you ask a really interesting question. It's kind of one that has been more and more interesting to me as time has gone by. I I enjoyed nothing more than reading the minutes of the combined chiefs of staff meetings, for example, and and seeing how they sat down at the table and and basically yelled and. Screamed at each other. Minutes written up very politically. You know, very, very nice. But, but um, coming, coming to consensus and finding out who 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 was able to do the job. I mean, I mean, um, somebody like Alan Brooke was a replacement for John Dill, and he was he proved to be better at controlling Churchill, for example, than his predecessor. And, what, and that was one of the reasons why he was so successful.
0: He's got a very British look, by the way. With, uh, oh that, yeah. That, well, that you know,
2: he, he was a. His diary is full of, of the birds that he sees. He's he a great bird watcher, and his, his greatest pleasure was sneaking away from whatever obligations he had, like in Morocco at Casablanca, being able to sneak away and, and uh, with his binoculars and a buddy and and looking at birds. And if that's not very British, well, then I got my stereotypes incorrect. Um, and he looks very British. Spoke very quickly, and I, I guess he was very, very hard to understand as well, especially for the Americans who weren't, who weren't used to his... Um, manner of speech, which was probably just a technique that he employed in order to um, to get his way. That's my guess. I find the, I find the personalities fascinating. I, I think that great men rise to the opportunity if they're given if they're given to the opportunity if they're given the opportunity. I think that's certainly true of Churchill, mm-hmm. particularly in 1940 when he kept the British in the war, and that was undoubtedly the right thing to do rather than. To go the baton route and say, well, our people have suffered enough, it's time to you know, accept the unacceptable and make peace. I, I, I credit Churchill with with um, that courage and that vision. I credit Roosevelt with having the, the vision of, of knowing what was the right thing to do in, in the crisis that the world faced in 1939 and 1940. I think Roosevelt deserves a lot of credit for having the best men or manner- or adequate men at at the very least to do the jobs that were required. I think, you know, Marshall was a natural choice to um, take the role that Eisenhower had in commanding Normandy, but, but um, Roosevelt was smart enough to keep him in Washington where conventional wisdom. And I, and I think that's conventional wisdom is correct in this case where he, where he did the job that was required to do to defeat Germany. Uh, People write all sorts of things about Admiral King, but let's face it. Admiral King, oversaw the most successful military campaign in, in the history of the world at war, I think, in the United States Navy in the Pacific? What what service organization took on a bigger challenge and did a better job than the U.S. Navy in 1942 through 1945, I ask you? And I would say nobody. So I, I think the, the personalities are very important. I think the the uh, men who did that job were, were special men in many respects. and But that's not to say they're unique. I, I like to think that, in a future war, knock on wood and pray that it never happens, that in a future war, the Navy and the U.S. military and the U.S. society in general would, would produce people who are able to do the job and do the job well. And, and you have to trust the systems that you have in order to, to produce these outcomes. And I think that was true of the U.S. military in the 1940s. And I'd like to think it's true of the U.S. military today.
1: I want to just, just say a couple things about Naval History Magazine. For those uh, listeners who are members of the naval institute or not uh who do enjoy proceedings um if you haven't discovered naval history magazine yet uh it is uh it's just a gem it is considered best in class of uh, military history genre uh it comes out six times a year so it's every other month richard latour is the editor in chief uh the content is just fantastic uh from short stories and little snippets of history all the way up to these great Feature articles that we've been talking with uh, Vince O'Hara today, author of two articles in the May issue, May-June issue, uh, D-Day, A Year Too Late, and the follow-on, A Tale of Two Invasions. Uh, If you're a Naval Institute member... You can subscribe to Naval History Magazine for $22.75 if you're not a member. Uh, Subscription is $35 a year. Uh, Either way, it's a bargain. And uh, I'd also like to point out that Vince O'Hara is the author of many Naval Institute press books, including his newest book, which is called Six Victories, North Africa, Malta, and the Mediterranean Convoy War, November 1941 to March 1942, coming out in October of this year. So, Vince, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for your coverage of, uh, of D-Day as we come up on the 75th anniversary of the, of the campaign uh, and your, your, uh, your coverage of uh, Saipan and uh, Operation Forager. This is two wonderful articles. Uh recommend them to all of our listeners and readers, uh, and, and we look forward to whatever you're going to write next for us.
2: Well, I really appreciate that. I, I thank you very much for the opportunity to um, talk to you today to talk about things that I'm so interested in I find so fascinating. And if I can make one comment about Naval History Magazine, please do. I have got, yeah, I have got, I don't know how many years worth of it. I've got two bookshelves full of Naval History Magazine. (laughs) And nothing is funner than when I'm working on something, sitting down and going through the Naval Histories, issue by issue, looking at this, looking at that, and finding all these hidden gems. That maybe I've forgotten about or maybe that are relevant to what I'm doing right now, it's, it's a great resource. And it's one that I use.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate quite frequently. that. I appreciate it's, that. It's great. I, praise, it's great.
2: I praise. I praise.
0: Yeah.
1: I'll, I'll bring one more thing to our, our listeners attention, which is uh, on May 31st, which was Friday was the deadline for the annual CNO Naval History essay contest. Uh, We had over 150 or about 150 uh, entries this year between the rising historian category and the professional historian category. Uh, Richard and and, uh, fellow uh, members of the Naval Institute staff are going through those right now. We'll be boiling those down over the next few weeks to send to the judges by the end of uh, around the 24th of June, if not earlier. Uh, and we'll, there'll be a uh, um, an event uh, to honor the winners of that contest uh, at the uh, Navy Museum at the uh, Navy Yard in Washington, D.C. on the 17th with the CNO. Uh, so if you are a member of the Naval Institute, if you're a retired military, active duty military, and want to come out, put it on your calendar, the 17th, uh, starting at 5 p.m. at the Navy Museum at the Navy uh, Yard in Washington, D.C., Uh, Last year, we had just some great articles. Some of them appeared in uh, Proceedings, and some of them appeared in Naval History magazine. And we're looking forward to what comes out of this year's crop. Right.
3: And the the winning professional essay will be in the September-October issue of Naval History, which we're just starting work on right now.
1: Fantastic. Okay. Well, thanks to to all our listeners for tuning in again. And uh, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week.